This podcast is about correcting the balance, whether it's something celebrated as good when it shouldn't be or the other way around. Or maybe the heroic tales of history just need to be knocked straight on their ass. Me, I just want to share the complete picture because that's when this whole thing gets fun. Warning, jokes and sarcasm may ensue. Welcome to Prick the Balloon. Hi, I'm Mike Vance, and welcome to Prick the Balloon, Episode 7. I hope y'all are having fun with these podcasts. I sure have been. The only thing that's tough about it is reining in how much time I spend going down various rabbit holes while I'm writing them and still having enough time left for writing on my book projects. But you know, learning is always a good thing, unless it's learning about your wife, your boss, and the pizza delivery dude. One of the greatest of all American history quotes is the text of a telegram that was probably sent by newspaper man William Randolph Hearst to one of the best Western artists of all time, Frederick Remington, in 1897. We know Remington for these fabulous scenes of cowboys and Indians and cavalry troopers, but he earned most of his money as an illustrator for newspapers and magazines. He was working for Hearst when he supposedly got this telegram that said, Please remain in Cuba, you furnish the pictures, and I'll furnish the war. There's debate about whether or not that actually really happened, but the preponderance of evidence suggests that it did. And either way, it certainly fits with everything else Hearst was doing. But it's another Hearst memorandum that really gives more insight into how the Spanish-American War came about. Hearst was talking about shaping public policy through publicity, an idea way older than the United States. And he said, quote, Our object is not to inquire whether a thing can be done, but whether it ought to be done. And if it ought to be done, to so exert the forces of publicity that public opinion will compel it to be done. End quote. The media has always had great power to alter events in the United States, long before Rupert Murdoch was even filing down his baby teeth or soiling his diapers for the first time around. It goes back to the Founding Fathers, but the Spanish-American War is this very concise and relatively upfront example of it really working. Imagine if Dick Cheney just came right out, tied Nell to the railroad track, and said, We have a chance to make billions in oil money, so we're invading Iraq. Sneer, sneer, evil laugh. The newspapers in 1898 were not only upfront about selling papers and exerting power, but they gleefully admitted that they were responsible for leading America to war. Hearst owned the New York Journal and the San Francisco Examiner, and his evil archenemy, Joseph Pulitzer, owned the New York World, and these two started trying to outdo each other on a daily basis to sell more papers. They wanted these big sensational stories and the best evergreen thing they found in the late 1890s was Cuba. They each sent scads of writers to hang around Cuba and come up with the most far-fetched human interest pieces, which the public just slurped up through a straw. The journal even ran a completely fake story just so they could rickroll the world when the world picked the story up the next day. Just as an aside, I mentioned Frederick Remington, but the journal also employed Stephen Crane, who wrote Red Badge of Courage. The time period we're talking about was the last of the Spanish Empire. At one time, Spain had the first global empire. That whole the sun never sets on the British Empire thing, that was originally the Spanish. But unlike the Brits, the Spanish were not necessarily smart managers and they got hung up on this insane caste system in which native-born peninsulares were superior to all other life forms. 
1895, they didn't have much left. All of South America had already won their independence. Spain was holding on to the Western Sahara Desert, Puerto Rico, Cuba, and the Philippines. And the last two were in the midst of bloody revolution. Imagine if the Brady Bunch had run a few more years and they were down to just two kids. Plus, on top of it all, Alice and Cindy are running a meth lab in the basement. Sugar production in Cuba was still making money for Spain, so they didn't want to lose that. I mean, that's how colonies work. Personally, I've been thinking about colonizing my next-door neighbors because, frankly, I can use the cash. They're well into their 80s, and I think I can take them. As generally happens with colonies and neighbors, the Cubans eventually got fed up with being beaten and robbed. There's only so much prison sex a body can stand, right? In Cuba, they call this 1890s conflict La Guerra Necesaria, the Necessary War. This was the third time the Cubans had attempted to kick the Spanish out of their country. The first time lasted ten full years, so they were desperate. Imagine if Roseanne Barr and Randy Quaid were living in your bedroom uninvited and farting up the couch and cooking bad chicharrones in the kitchen at all hours. I mean, the Cubans needed these Spanish bastards gone. And the Spanish-American War was just the final three months of this whole process that had started 30 years earlier. There are a few things going on during these 30 years. Cuba still had slavery until 1886, even though almost nobody there was asking for it to remain. There were about 90,000 enslaved Africans, and then planters started bringing in indentured Chinese workers to the tune of 125,000 of them. When all of that ended, those freed slaves joined the Cuban workforce. The Chinese mostly moved on. Then you had José Martí, this Cuban poet and essayist and professor and passionate revolutionary who went into exile in the U.S. and started whipping up his fellow expats in Ybor City next to Tampa and in Key West. Like Václav Havel got all the press for revolutionary poets in the 1990s, that was José Martí. The ideals of the American Revolution are deeply ingrained in every native-born U.S. citizen, and it becomes our undying mission to annoy the living shit out of the rest of the world with it. But for all of our faults, it is my optimistic and true belief that Americans are generally kind. When they're actually presented with instances of people suffering unless they're Elon Musk, Americans tend to step up. Whether that's the family of the people down the street who had their Christmas presents stolen, or Ukrainians being attacked, or Somalians starving. Sometimes it's through personal charity and nonprofits, sometimes it's through government policy and troops. And that's where Hearst and Pulitzer come in. Deep down, the American people wholeheartedly sided with the Cuban revolutionaries. It was an echo of our own fight for independence, and Americans loved that. But the American people clearly needed a little shove. People respond to stories, and every good story needs a villain. And boy, was there a ready-made bad guy for this whole conflict. Valeriano Weiler, the governor general sent by Madrid to Cuba to put a stop to all this freedom bullshit and restore order to the island post-haste. Hearst and Pulitzer called him Weiler the Butcher, and they ran him in editorial cartoons day after day for a year. One two-page spread in the New York Journal had Weiler holding this bloody sword and standing over this cowering little woman who represented Cuba. The American press just hammered at this heartless, snidely whiplash. But Weiler helped out in all this himself by being a walking caricature. 
The guy had these giant mutton-chop sideburns that connected with his mustache. He was a lifetime military man. He had first entered the Spanish Infantry College when he was 16, and his voice is still changing. Though he was thoroughly Spanish, his ancestors were Prussian. He was almost 60 by the time he got to Havana, and he loved to dress up in military uniforms with spangly epaulets and a big sash and so many medals that some of them are probably pinned to his armpit hair and his ass. To top all that off, Weiler was not even five feet tall. So if there was ever a little man syndrome, Valeriano Weiler was the chihuahua of war. I like to imagine that when new people walked into the room, he let go a little squirt of pee. When we think of concentration camps, we think of the Nazis or Trump's Christmas list. But the fact is that they are older than that. The Germans especially bought into the idea just after 1900 in Southwest Africa, but the premise of civilian concentration camps belongs to the Spanish. Arriba! Weiler's predecessor in Cuba was a guy named Arsenio Martinez Campos, and he is a great answer to the trivia question of whether or not there were actually people named Arsenio before 1981. Well, the bad Arsenio told the Spanish government, who were already a bunch of conservatives and reactionaries to begin with, that they needed what he called reconcentration camps in Cuba. The revolutionaries had the backing of the rural people who supplied them with food and hiding places and more revolutionaries. So, bad Arsenio told Madrid that the only way to deal with the revolution was to take a few hundred thousand campesinos and put them behind barbed wire. But when it came down to what LBJ would have called nut-cutting time, bad Arsenio couldn't go through with it. He knew the rebels had been kind to the Spanish wounded in battle, had returned the Spanish soldiers they'd captured, so bad Arsenio said he just could not imprison thousands of civilians. And the Spanish government recalled him and replaced him with Weiler. Weiler issued three orders in October 1896, telling all the rural Cubans that they had to move from the country into a nearby city where they would be imprisoned and guarded by Spanish soldiers. If you had cattle, they came with you. Taking any food outside of the towns would cause you to be severely punished. Most of these rurales Cubans didn't read, so the soldiers rounded them up and forced them out of their homes, and they're not even sure what's going on. If you were judged to be a problem, you went to a special camp. Children were separated from their parents. People were living in crowded hallways, sleeping on floors, eating leftovers from the military garrisons if they were lucky. Some had to survive eating roots and bones that were left over at the bottom of the military pots. Crops in the field went untended and unharvested. Because of the conditions and the diet, typhoid and dysentery began to spread, along with all the mosquito-borne diseases like yellow fever and malaria, and an estimated 300,000 people died. That's one-fifth of the entire population of Cuba killed off between 1896 and 1898. And the American press took photos and had artists make drawings, and understandably, the American people got all riled up over their Cuban brothers and sisters. Make no mistake, the American press piled on a heaping dollop of shit that never happened, or they completely exaggerated how bad things were. And when you already had as many as 300,000 people dying, exaggerating that situation takes some real talent. So the first thing to understand is this was really U.S. intervention into a war that was already going on. But true to human character, we demanded our name on it. 
it needs to say American. Calling it the Cuban Revolution ain't good box office, and what the holy hell would we call the sequel? It was the last gasp of the Spanish Empire, but it was also the first big success of the American Empire, and the Americans were looking to the Caribbean first thing. Remember when we talked about President Grant and he wanted to make the Dominican Republic a state to counteract the Spanish in Cuba, so grabbing some big island down there was not a new idea. You can go all the way back to James Madison and his Secretary of State, James Monroe, and find active American support for a Cuban revolt against Spain. The idea to buy Cuba went all the way back to James K. Polk, who offered a nice round hundred mil. Franklin Pierce even talked about taking Cuba by force. The U.S. wanted their hands on Cuba for a long damn time. The Civil War was a tad distracting, but then when that was over, a strong movement to annex Cuba came back. James G. Blaine, who came within an anorexic cat's whisker of being elected president in 1884, was one of the biggest advocates. Other than losing the presidential election to Grover Cleveland, Blaine was a powerful senator and secretary of state. Blaine and others are dropping these strong hints that, yeah, sure, it belongs to Spain, but if things ever change, hey, Cubanas, uh, you ever get tired of that old man of yours? We Americans are right next door, and we have a hot tub. At the same exact time, the U.S. has pulled off the very same thing with Hawaii and annexed them. So the Spanish are watching this. The big difference being that Hawaii was not owned outright by a major European country. Still, that spam and poke is tasting pretty good to the Americans in 1898, so why not add some ropa vieja and plantains? Here's a good truism about empires. Sure, they're all about greed, but countries have historically been pretty good at self-delusion while they're building these empires. The Spanish and French rationalized that they were spreading Catholicism to the world. The British told themselves they were bringing civilization, cheerio, pip, pip, even though, you know, they might have to kill a few thousand people to do it. Though we like to flirt with humanitarianism, the Americans are often pretty blunt that we are just watching out for our investments. Immediately following the Spanish-American War, the U.S. invaded Nicaragua, Honduras, Haiti, Panama, and the Dominican on behalf of the United Fruit Company. And don't even get me started on oil. Cheap bananas, United Fruit, they're good for you. So, you can bet your ass that American business is eyeballing these final Spanish colonies, coveting thy neighbor's islands, as it were. José Martí, our true liberal poet who wanted a better society and democracy, had still been trying to raise an army in Florida, meanwhile, and on Christmas Day, 1894, he loaded up three ships at Fernandina Beach with soldiers and supplies. The United States seized two of them, but that didn't stop Martí from returning to his rustic cabin and issuing a manifesto. In February, the uprising started all over the island. To simplify the situation, the rebels did well at the east end of Cuba, down toward Santiago, but not so much the west end by Havana. Poor Marti, who ultimately was a lover, not a fighter, was shot down in battle in early 1895. Keep in mind, this is the third time they are starting a war for independence, and they bring back a guy from the first war, so think 95-year-old Indiana Jones. This is General Maximo Gomez, Mahimo. Maximo Gomez, to be blunt, he's kind of a dick. Gomez was from the Dominican, and he fought with the Spanish when they tried to hang on to that colony. And when they lost, a bunch of his frat brothers there moved to Cuba. But at some point, he says, you know what? I'm a revolutionary now. 
I like the cigars and the camo. So he starts fighting against the Spanish. And Gomez plays rough. He starts dynamiting Spanish trains. He takes the idea of guerrilla fighting that was something the Spanish used against Napoleon, and he institutes that against the Spanish military in Cuba. And yes, it's guerrilla, not guerrilla like Mighty Joe Young, but we Americans are too busy eating pork rinds and processed cheese to bother with pronunciations. I mean, seriously. Finally, though he said it hurt him, Gomez had his rebels start burning the big sugar haciendas and all of the crops. But after all of that, they're still losing because Spanish Nixon had been sending in more and more troops. Eventually, they got to 300,000 Spanish soldiers on the island. By the start of 1898, Gomez and his revolutionaries are just about finished. And yes, for the record, I did just do an entire section on Gomez without a single Adams Family reference. Thank you. Another thing about colonies is that the events at home have a huge impact. And in June 1897, the right-wing prime minister in Spain got assassinated and replaced by a liberal. He understood that all Weiler had really accomplished was to galvanize the hatred of the Cubans and to totally piss off the rest of the world. So Weiler got recalled to Spain, and Madrid replaced him with Ramon Blanco, a guy who had served in the governor general's position in the Philippines, and I already alluded to how well that was going. This all meant that the American press had lost their favorite whipping boy in Weiler, but they were about to get something way better. The President of the United States by this point is William McKinley, a short, doughy, genial, Bible-thumping guy from Niles, Ohio, almost certainly loved deviled eggs and said, pull my finger a lot. Like many other presidents of the time period, he was generally thought to have a puppet master, talking with the richest people in the country and pulling his strings. In the case of McKinley, that guy was Mark Hanna, who later brought animals onto the Johnny Carson show. Okay, different dude, but I tried. The money interest in the U.S. did not want war with Spain. They were making excellent coin at home and didn't want to upset that apple cart. So, McKinley was against the war. His predecessor, Grover Cleveland, in his second non-consecutive term, had also been against the war. Cleveland even tried to mediate on behalf of the Cuban rebels, only to be shut down hard by Weiler the Butcher when he was still in charge. In January 1898, Ramon Blanco had barely settled into the job when people loyal to the Spanish started rioting in Havana. Their primary targets were four newspapers who had printed negative stories about the atrocities of the Spanish army. The U.S. consul cabled back to Washington and said that American lives might be in danger, so the Navy sent the battleship Maine to Havana to protect Americans. It had been there two weeks, sitting in Havana Harbor when it blew up without warning blowed up real good. 260 American soldiers were killed. McKinley demanded satisfaction. He got the Spanish occupiers to close down the concentration camp operations and to offer a truce to the rebels, but the rebels refused to accept the truce. Still, McKinley said he did not want war with Spain. Immediately, the Hearst and Pulitzer papers start blaming the Spanish for blowing up the battleship Maine and killing all those young American boys. This was way better than Weiler, and even better than pictures of starving kids with their ribs sticking out. These were Americans. Signs and chants to remember the Maine and to hell with Spain started popping up everywhere. Speeches are given in every little town, and in less than two months, the opinion of business and religious leaders who had been against the war with Spain had flipped. 
Finally, McKinley flipped with them and gave this long, rambly speech asking for a declaration of war. He even invoked the annexation of Texas and brought up Grant's words, and ultimately he talked about an external underwater mine being the cause of the explosion on the Maine. And then he dramatically slapped Ambassador Trentino, kissed Margaret Dumont, shook hands with his brother Chico, signaled the trumpeters, and said, This means war! Land of the brave and free! For the record, we're still not 100% sure what caused the main to blow up. But the thinking is that it was some problem inside the ship, not outside. And if you think logically, why the hell would the Spanish want to piss off the United States at that point? The United States, after years of provocation in the press, finally declared war on Spain in late April and said they were going to liberate Cuba. Make no mistake, the Spanish-American War was about Cuba more than the Philippines because Cuba was close and the American people knew it. In the days when it took a long-ass time to cross an ocean, war correspondents could sail from Florida to Cuba in a day. But these other places mattered. Anti-imperialists in the U.S. Senate insisted on an amendment to the Declaration of War that said we would not annex Cuba. But they never mentioned Puerto Rico and the Philippines. So you can see where this is headed. Honey, what I did to Monica was not really sex. One funny but predictable part of all of this is that when the United States jumped in and declared war on Spain, the Spanish went running to the revolutionaries and Maximo Gomez with open arms and said, Hermano, my brother, we're so alike. We can't just let these foreigners come and waltzing in here. You'll be on our side, right? And understandably, Gomez said, um, no. The U.S. Army had not been doing a lot since the Civil War. They'd even run out of Indians to kill at this point. So they immediately had to get their shit together. They had a small regular army, but they started getting volunteers and sending them to Florida so they could train and then sail across to Cuba. More on the most famous of those volunteers in a little bit. But one thing that happened was pretty damn funny, at least to me. After the Civil War, these militias had started appearing. In the South, some of them were like de facto Klan at first, but by the 1880s, the Union Army was long gone back home, they figured the freedmen had been sufficiently subjugated, and these ex-Confederates realized they still liked dressing up in uniforms. So, the militias, often called light guards or something like that, morphed into these private rich guy clubs. They had marching and drill competitions against one another. They hosted elaborate barbecues, and they built fancy clubhouses with billiard rooms and mahogany bars. And their ranks were filled with new younger members who had never tasted war like their fathers had. Then, when the U.S. decides to go to war in 1898, they send notice to these light guards that they've been called up to active duty, because these militias were the National Guard. And suddenly, there are all these fancy lawyers and judges and bankers that are like, what? We just play dress-up at the club. We're not looking to get shot at. What the hell? To their credit, some of these rich guys did do their duty. And more about that shortly. If we view just the United States portion, which we call the Spanish-American War here, there was nothing like a death toll at Gettysburg or D-Day, but if you're the guy getting shot at, hugging the dirt while shells and bullets are screaming over your head, you probably don't give a mouse's ass about the grand scope of the battle. It was a war, and slightly over 2,000 American soldiers, sailors, and Marines died. Yes, it seems like a surprisingly small number for something we call a war, but let's still give them some respect. A total of 280,000 Americans served during the war. 
The U.S. had just built this grand armored naval fleet to assert our claim to world dominance, and frankly, we were itching to try those bad boys out. There are several historians that list that as an actual cause of the Spanish-American War. This new fleet was burning a hole in America's pocket. Think if you get a new cowboy hat and cap guns for Christmas, you are damn sure going to wear those bad boys to church. But let's be clear. The Spanish Navy had armored cruisers. It was a real Navy. It wasn't like my old buddy Dickie Palmer used to say about the Iraqi Navy being three bass boats with a trolling motor. The first battle of the war, the Battle of Manila Bay, was one of the most one-sided naval battles in all of history. The Americans suffered seven minor injuries and one death. The chief engineer aboard the cutter McCulloch, who died of a heart attack, and he could have been thinking about Filipino hookers for all we know. The Americans already had a small fleet in the Pacific, a battle group called the Asiatic Squadron, which is some next-level Space Force name shit right there, huh? The ships were at Hong Kong at the start of 1898, and by ships, I mostly mean one, the heavy cruiser Olympia. There were some smaller ships, including two coal boats the Americans bought from China to carry their fuel, and they kept the Chinese crews, which would make Ron DeSantis spontaneously combust. They were only three days steaming distance away from Manila when war was declared, and Manila is where the Spanish fleet was based. And to top it all off, the Americans had secret plans of the harbor, so they snuck in at midnight, they avoided the underwater mines, and were sitting there ready to fire at sunup. And that's when George Dewey looked at his gunnery captain and said, You may fire when ready, Gridley which is this famous Navy quote that sounds like he's asking the butler to bring him a drier martini. And he could have had one, because they captured or sank the entire Spanish fleet and shut down the shore batteries in Manila in a total of six hours. They literally won the battle and wiped out the enemy fleet before lunch. I like to think that George Dewey sounded a lot like Thurston Howell III. On land, the Cuban and Filipino revolutionaries had been through years of bloody jungle fighting, death and snakes and crotch rot and itchy insects, but they are dedicated dudes who suffered through all of this. They were also losing, or had already lost. So there is no doubt that it was the Americans that changed everything and turned everything around. I just want to mention a handful of the military leaders, because they're interesting stories. Lots of them were old guys who had fought in the Civil War 35 years earlier. The first one I'll mention, I already mentioned him, biggest hero of the war is Commodore George Dewey. And let's face it, that is a Navy rank that should still be in use if Lionel Richie hadn't jacked it up for all of us. Dewey is the only person in U.S. history to achieve the rank of Admiral of the Navy, and that just sounds like some title Columbus would have given himself. The guy was 60 years old when he fought in Manila Bay, had fought in the Civil War, and he had one of the most impressive walrus mustaches that I have ever seen, just this stellar piece of broom hanging out under his nose. He inherited a bunch of money, and after his first wife died, Dewey was apparently big on chasing the ladies. There's a story that he had two women with him one time and unexpectedly ran into his son, who he introduced as his little brother because the Commodore had underplayed his age while he was trying to just get close to these brick house ladies on the night shift. You dig? Next is Fightin' Joe Wheeler. 
His family was an old Puritan family from New England, but they'd migrated south, and he was born in Georgia. Then he ended up living with relatives back up north, and he was appointed to West Point from the state of New York, almost missing out because he was just a hair too short for the official height requirement. But a few years later, when the Civil War broke out, Wheeler resigned from the U.S. Army and joined the Confederates as a first lieutenant. He ended the war as a lieutenant general. Three things to note about Joe Wheeler in the Civil War. He hated Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was the racist terrorist that founded the Klan. He was wounded three times in battle and had 16 horses shot out from under him in battle. Once he got surrounded at Shelbyville, Tennessee, and was backed up against a small cliff with just 50 men, and Wheeler jumped his horse off a 15-foot embankment into a swollen river to escape. Finally, Wheeler was one of the goobers who tried to help Jefferson Davis escape after the war and was headed to Texas to keep fighting. Obviously, he didn't make it, and he got tossed in prison for two months. After the Civil War, he gets elected to Congress and once tried to rush the Speaker of the House by hopping from desk to desk. Okay, that's like seven things, but whatever. When the Spanish-American War gets declared, Wheeler volunteered to fight. He was 61 years old. McKinley appointed him second-in-command of the Fifth Corps Cavalry, and Wheeler was involved in the first notable land battle in Cuba. He tried to get the Cuban rebels to join him in attacking the Spanish, and they refused, so he went it alone with just his Americans. And at one point, they're pursuing the Spanish soldiers, and Wheeler got a tad confused and supposedly shouted, Come on, boys! We got the Yankees on the run! You remember Bad Arsenio from earlier? There was another one and he's even worse. Arsenio Linares was the Spanish general of the army who was up against the Americans in Cuba. Linares, who we'll call worse Arsenio, was blatantly white supremacist, vehemently anti-Semitic, and was on record as being strongly against the idea of democracy. He's up for a cabinet post if the orange guy ever wins again, by the way. Boom boom. He had served in Cuba fighting the first revolution and was part of getting the old band back together, just like Gomez. About the only thing worse Arsenio had going for him was some more standout facial hair. And now that I think about it, that may have been an actual requirement for military leadership back in the day. When the Americans were landing on, and I am not making this up, Daiquiri Beach, Linares abandoned his coastal position and fell back, giving them totally unopposed access to the swim-up bar. He established the defenses for the famous Battle of San Juan Hill, and he put them in the wrong fucking place. When the Americans charged up the hill, the Spanish couldn't fully see them or fire at them. On top of that, he held 10,000 of his troops back in reserve throughout the entire battle. When it was done, he wrote his boss and said, quote, The situation is fatal, surrender inevitable, and we are only prolonging the agony. I looked in vain for the reply from his superiors that said, uh, no shit, loser. After he went back to Spain, Linares was rewarded with more medals and by being named Minister of Defense and is generally blamed for causing a deadly riot in Barcelona when he called up all the poor men to go into the army to protect Spain's last colony in Morocco. Penultimately, and you don't get to use that word often enough, I've got to mention Emilio Aguinaldo, who was the head of the revolutionaries in the Philippines. He started fighting these rebel battles with 100, 200 men, but he kept having little successes. At one point, the Filipino rebels scored a big victory at Isabella II Bridge, and Aguinaldo ended up with the Spanish general's sword, and from then on, he kept it strapped to his side. 
He kept getting bigger and bigger titles, like President and Generalissimo of the Rebel Forces, all of which he's giving to himself. Eventually, though, the Spanish brought in more troops and regained the upper hand, and Aguinaldo and his top dudes signed a peace deal that called for him to go into exile in Hong Kong, but not until he pocketed a payment of 800,000 pesos. Yeah, exactly. What the hell, Emilio? Well, when the Americans get involved, Aguinaldo hitches a ride back to the Philippines on one of Dewey's ships, because he's right there. He immediately declares himself dictator of the country and started fighting alongside the Americans. And here is one of the weirdest war shit stories you'll ever hear. The Spanish commander in Manila, who was soon hopelessly surrounded, was also a very inventive dude. First, he offered Aguinaldo a million pesos to get lost. When that didn't work, and very much not wanting to take his chances against the rebels, he pitched an idea that he would surrender the city and his troops to the Americans, but only after a mock battle. Yep, he insisted on this fake fight, so it would look to the people back in Madrid like he hadn't just simply given up because the enemy asked him to. And Admiral Dewey eventually agreed to this shit. At the moment of the mock battle, some jackhole Spaniard fired, and it ended up with more than 50 people dead. But the Spanish surrendered to the Americans, which pissed off Aguinaldo royally. When he found out that the Americans planned to stick around, he fought the U.S. Army for a few years, was captured, had a few of his enemies assassinated, collaborated with the Japanese during World War II, was pardoned, and remains a Filipino hero today. One major result of the Spanish-American War was the rise to national prominence of Teddy Roosevelt, and that's the last person I want to talk about. Roosevelt was Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and he had been pushing for this new fleet, and he was involved with sending the battleship Maine to Havana. When it blew up, he was at the front of the line demanding war. He resigned his position with the Navy to raise a volunteer regiment to go fight in Cuba. Roosevelt was a lieutenant colonel, second in command to Leonard Wood, who got a big army post named after him, but obviously Roosevelt is the guy we know. His unit was the first U.S. volunteer cavalry, popularly called the Rough Riders, not to be confused with either a condom or a Canadian football team. There were 23,000 applications for 10,000 spots. The first ones that got accepted were Ivy Leaguers and polo players from the East Coast, some of them Roosevelt's childhood friends. But Roosevelt himself really wanted cowboys. So he went down to San Antonio, checked into the Menger Hotel, and started signing up men from Texas, Indian Territory, and the territories of Arizona and New Mexico. They made up the bulk of the regiment, and they gave it what Roosevelt called its peculiar character. You can still go to the Menger Hotel bar today, and I highly recommend it, though there are only about five bar stools. and they'll show you the bullet holes allegedly made by rowdy Rough Rider recruits, though I am kind of skeptical about it, but it's a great bar. The Rough Riders sailed to Cuba and were involved in two battles, both within a span of nine days. The big one happened when Roosevelt's men charged up Kettle Hill, part of San Juan Heights outside Santiago. It was a legit battle, more than a 1,000 of the Americans were wounded and 144 killed, and T.R. was at the head of his men with bullets whizzing by and sunlight flashing off his Coke bottle glasses. Before he even returned to New York, he was a hero. Pictures are circulating with the Rough Riders in uniform. They had a mountain lion that they tamed into a mascot, and within five months of his return, Theodore Roosevelt was governor of New York back in the days when sexual harassment was not a requirement for that office. 
By July 1898, Spain had lost the Philippines and Puerto Rico, and knew Cuba was a goner, so they agreed to peace. They signed a protocol of peace in August, then a formal treaty in Paris in December. The entire Spanish-American War and peace took about nine months, which is less time than it takes to read the book of the same name. The treaty granted Cuban independence, but the revolutionaries themselves did not get to take part in either the treaty negotiations or the formal surrender ceremony. The U.S. kept the Isle of Pines in Cuba. We occupied Cuba on and off all the way up to 1922, and shortly after the Spanish signed the last treaty, the U.S. wrote up a deal for a permanent lease on Guantanamo Bay Naval Base. And don't try that permanent lease shit down at your local Ford dealer. Another thing that we got out of the deal was the invention of rum and coke. For real. The original declaration of war back in April had specifically said that the U.S. could not keep Cuba, but it said nothing about the other Spanish possessions. So we took the Philippines in exchange for 20 million smackers. Our situation in the Philippines turned very ugly in a hurry and may well come up in a later podcast. While we were at it, the U.S. also took possession of Guam, Puerto Rico, Roberto Clemente, Pudge Rodriguez, Orlando Cepeda, and 265 relief pitchers to be named later. One little soft mention before I go. Christmas is upon us, and books make a nice holiday gift. It just so happens that several of the books I've written are available for purchase through my website at mikevancewriter.com. Even if they arrive a few days late, or if you don't celebrate Christmas, think about giving a nice book for New Year's, or MLK Day, or Groundhog Day. Books are good things. And happy, happy holidays and Merry Christmas to all of you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out my website at MikeVanceWriter.com. Prick the Balloon is copyrighted by Mike Vance, all rights reserved.